Hi, Mates of the Podcast fans. This is your host, Terry Robinson, and today I have a special guest with me, Joseph M. Aleo. The M stands for machine. A year and a half ago, you looked at the world and said, I want to learn how to play mage. There are no mage podcasts, so despite not yet knowing how to play, you started one. Today, our topic is Joseph's first exposure to actual tabletop play of Mage the Ascension. Joseph, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much. And you know, we were saying before the, uh, the actual recording of the show, I was saying, how great a job that you and Adam are doing. And yeah, I, I pretty much willed the show into existence much like a mage would do. And so I'm really glad that you guys are doing it. And as far as me playing, I've only had one experience playing mage, and that was about two weeks ago, and it was bonkers. So how did it go? Like, how did you find out about the group? Was it live play? Were you just sitting around the table? You didn't have to Skype or anything or text people? Give us some deets. All right, so I'm going to do a little backstory here. The last time I played a role-playing game is probably when I was in my 20s, and that was sporadic. I did most of my game-playing when I was a teenager, so it's been decades. And what had happened is for two years, I've been playing Vampire the Masquerade. And my girlfriend, she says, hey, the people I work with, they're gamers. I'm like, oh, that's cool. And she said, well, you know, they're going to be doing a board game night. Would you like to join them? I'm like, yeah, sure. And then they invited us to play Vampire. And so we played that for two years. And in one of the game sessions, my friend Jason, he said, yeah, they have all these other games. There's one about werewolves, and there's one about mummies, and there's one about changelings, and there's one about mages. And I said, okay, just tell me more. And he told me, and I'm like, that sounds dumb. But <laughs> I walked away from it, and I started thinking about Grant Morrison's The Invisibles, which is basically hipster magicians. And I'm like, oh, wait, I could actually play that comic book. That sounds Awesome. And uh, I started learning as much as I could about Mage. And yes, I, that's where I started trying to find Mage podcasts. And then I just got bogged down because Mage 20, uh, if you drop it on your foot, you're going to break some toes. Yeah, we and actually have an interview with someone who did a, a quicker than the quick start guide that hopefully will, after that interview, people will know of its existence and they'll be able to be like, this is, this is the pamphlet that we will throw from rooftops that we will hand out in airports. We will be the Hari Krishna of Mage. Yeah, it's a bit of a doorstop. Yeah, well, the more people we can get into Mage, so much the better because it seems like a really fantastic game. Uh, but what ended up happening is I started learning it and I started sketching out characters and I've got my own intricate plot line. Uh, a lot of it owes a lot to Grant Morrison. And then I just got bogged down because it's big and life got in the way. But my friends, I said, hey, uh, there is a local gaming store. It's called At Ease Games here in San Diego. Why don't you join one of their mage games so you can see how the game is actually played? And so it was a large group. I'm going to say there were about maybe six players. There was one other newbie. I mean, newbie, like she's never played any World of Darkness games that I know of. Like when they said, hey, roll dice, she started grabbing like 12-sided dice and six-sided dice. I'm like, no, 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 no. But as far as the game itself goes, I played a virtual adept. And there was a, let's see, someone from the technocracy who was part of the team. There was a verbena, verbena, verbena how do you say that? Verbena. Verbena. So what we did is the we, we met at a bar in San Diego as... That happens in all role-playing games, apparently. Mm -hmm. And um, we went to Greece, and we encountered a being from uh, Greek mythology. I'm trying uh, Theseus, I believe. Yes, the woman who goes down to Hades. Uh, Persephone. Uh, she came back to Earth and decided to stay for whatever reasons, because I didn't find out yet. And so the seasons were out of whack, and that was our mission. And during the course of the game, the technocratic mage 
crashed the world economy. And I'm like, oh, well, this is a different sort of game. <laughs> yeah, that's, a, that's, a, that's an interesting scale. My most recent chronicle, I'm classy. I have my characters meet at cocktail parties, hosted usually by another mage, and that way we get to cut everything out. So let's let's backtrack first, because you brought us with a guy I have strong feelings about. I, too, started with Vampire the Masquerade. What vampire character did you have? Come on, let's give us, let's get some deets. Okay, so first of all, I have to say that when I got invited to play Vampire, that's not my genre. Okay. Uh, I'm not really into the monster genres, but I'm like, well, I haven't played role-playing games in decades, and if this is what gets me back into it, so be it. So my first character, he was a Torador, okay. and he was a bon vivant, but he was also very debauched. And uh, I, I modeled him off of Oscar Wilde. Okay. And he didn't exactly have a herd, but the way he got his blood is that uh, in, in L.A. he had a porn studio, and so like he would have a casting couch, hmm. and that's where he would get his blood from. Unfortunately, since I did not know all the lore of the game, I approached a werewolf with a waving a white hanky and like, peace, 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 <laughs> and I was dismembered, and that was the end of that character. Well, we've, we've all been, we've all suffered that fate. I, I, <laughs> I feel like that's like the early text adventures where you go down the wrong hallway and it's like, you have been eaten, and you're like, oh, okay, I guess I, I, guess I try over again. Reroll. Well, I, I didn't know werewolves are killing machines, and everybody on their table is like, ooh, don't do that. But I'm like, oh, you know, I, I can make peace. This will work out just fine. No. What was the character creation process for you? So you're a person with time constrictions. This was your first time sitting down as a group. Did you come with something already in hand? Was that a group thing? Did you talk with the storyteller ahead of time? How did you make your virtual adept? The night before, I, I had two quick character concepts, and one was going to be an iteration X who had escaped from... Um, the technocracy or was liberated I, I hadn't really decided and the other one was sort of kicking around some ideas that was based on this uh post-apocalyptic game i'm putting together and basically he is the love child of two protesters who met in the saddle protest back in the 90s and he's a hacktivist and he is a millennial or more of a generation z guy i guess and so you know, because my kids are of that age and so i just thought all right i'm going to model him after that he is very disrespectful and he is still new in the ways of mage as am i because i don't know all the lore and it was fun to play him in fact one of the instances in the game is that i'm going to swear here just to let you know in one of the instances of the game we landed in greece and one of the members of our party is a huge rock star. And so there, there was a huge crowd like, ah, rah, rah, Zane, we love you. And I came out right behind him and I threw up my arms like, yeah, who wants to fuck me, bitches? That's not who I am at all, but that's my character. He's, he's like that. There is only so much I am able to depart from the actual person that I am. I'm kind of excited. I recently received my first invite to actually play Mage. I have been storytelling for 20 years at this point, and I am now going through that period of being paralyzed with options. And right now, the top line one is a hermetic, and I'm going to destroy that. Like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do such a terrible job. I look forward to, to burning that down and seeing what I do after it. So do, what, what is your process for coming up with those characters? Do they kind of appear fully formed in your head, or do you just uh, did you start with like a thumbnail sketch and slowly flush it out over time? I did not have too much time because I found out about the game a week beforehand. And so for the iteration X character, I had pretty much nothing to work with. And for the virtual Adam character, which is the one I decided to go with, as I said, I am going to be running a post-apocalyptic game very shortly. And so I have a lot of fleshed out characters there. I'm like, oh, well, what if one of these two characters had a kid? What would that person be like? I'm like, oh, I can run with this. And so 
that's why I was able to lean into it so heavy. And I based them on some SoundCloud rappers like uh, Six Nine and Extension. And so he's pretty much based on those guys. Well, this is the first time we've had you on the show. Do you mind if we talk about you a little bit and I guess the, the genesis of the show and where you'd like it to go? I will do my best. I'm more comfortable being on the other side of the microphone, but sure, ask away. I understand, and I'm more comfortable being on the other side. So this is going to be a learning experience for everyone. So you you started this podcast out of nowhere. You've done a lot of work prior to that. Is there anything in content generation? Is there anything you'd want to share with the audience? Any projects you've done that you think it'd be nice for them to know about? First of all, I've been doing radio and podcasts for more than half my life. I was part of a college community radio station, and at the time I was very much into punk rock and electronic music. And the guy who got me into it, what had happened... I was working at a telemarketing firm. This was back when I was in my early 20s. And I had a stack of vinyl, but, you know, I just had a CD player. And I said, does anyone have a turntable so I can record these albums? And one of the guys who worked at the telemarketing firm, because they were just chock full of actors and musicians, he said, I don't have a turntable, but I work at this college community radio station. And if you come with me the following night, you can go into the training studio and record the albums. I'm like, oh, cool. So I went in, and while I was recording my albums, I listened to the music. It was he, he was playing, and it was freeform. That was the format of the station. So if you heard opera, and the next song would be country, and the next song would be ska, it would not be incongruous. And I thought, this is fantastic. This is the way radio is meant to be. This is the way I listen to music, and this is the way I've always wanted it to be. And shortly after I joined, he started doing a live music show. But he's very much into pop, and as I said at the time, was very much into industrial and punk and all that, so I'm not... I thought to myself, I'm going to do the same thing, just feature the bands that I want to feature. And with that punk rock ethos of do-it-yourself, I had to recruit my own sound person. I had to get all the bands. And this is before the internet or right about early days. It was the same sort of deal. If I wanted to make it happen, I had to will it into existence. And that has stayed with me all this time. And so what had happened, eventually I moved to San Diego and I hooked up with a pirate radio station and an activist pirate radio station. And at one point, one of the DJs said, hey, there's this thing called podcasting. You should look into that. And I thought to myself, you know what? I'm slightly OCD. And if I get into it and I like it, it's going to devour all my time. So I said no. But after about three, six months later, I started downloading some podcasts. And it was the Wild West. The production values were crap at the time. But the potential and the enthusiasm was fantastic. And I thought, I have to do this. So I started immediately. The very first I heard my own podcast I'm going to start my own podcast. And so it was an interview show. And basically, to me, it was the punk rock version of Fresh Air. And I thought I was the bee's knees. I listen to those shows now, and I cringe. It was sophomoric. Uh, I have so much more respect for Terry Gross because she is just a phenomenal interviewer. Same thing goes for Ira Glass. At the time, though, at one of the pirate radio stations, I was doing an electronic music show. And I thought, you know what? I'm already doing the show. Let's just upload it as a podcast and see what happens. And that got a lot of hits. And so I was running out of extra time because I had started a new job. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to ease up on the interview show and just do this electronic music show. And But I had the same inclinations. I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to just play music. I'm going to interview the record labels. I'm going to interview the musicians. I'm going to interview the festival organizers. Thank you. And I did that for four or five years. I did about 325 episodes, and it was a blast. But eventually I burnt out, and I got a girlfriend, and then I had kids, and a dog, and turtles. 
It's the turtles that really put you over the edge. Do not get turtles. Those things, I want to get rid of them, but we're stuck with them. Our, our kids are going to inherit them. Um, but <laughs> I don't have the same amount of time anymore, which is why I appreciate all the work that you put into it, because I know how hard it is and how much effort and time that you have to spend. And that's why I, I love what you do, because I respect and admire all the effort that you do, because it's hard. It's a lot of hours. The entire point of me interviewing you was just to get that segment. That way I could have it as a little MP3 snippet that whenever I lose hope, I can be like, Uncle Joe says I'm doing good. So where do you want things to go? The, the listeners may not know this, but we there was a little bit of a hiatus over winter, and we informally started what I'm going to call season two, starting in February. What's your goal with this puppy? I really like the direction you're heading into, specifically you and Adam, because I have listened to, say, um, Vampire the Masquerade, a 25-year retrospective. Uh, I've listened to uh, Walking Away from Arcadia. To me, those are kind of the beacons. I really like how they dig into the lore. They talk about how you can play the game, various approaches, how you might build an adventure. That's what I wanted to listen to for a major podcast when I launched it. And so it's finally at that point. And basically, whatever direction you want to go in, let's do it. Let me shop three ideas for you. And after this, we'll get back to some age questions. One, we've talked about doing live play. And we've talked about tutorial mode, which would be us just going through some, as you mentioned, the doorstop. It's super intimidating. And having a few sample plays. Would you have any interest in, in seeing us do, for instance, one-shots? Like, we are just going to take a four-hour story arc, cut it up into four episodes, and that is going to be the month of February in 2020. I'm glad you brought that up, because when you asked me, I was kind of on the spot. Uh, I've actually wanted to hear an actual play for a long time. In fact, game developers, if you're out there, and if you're about to release a new game, I think it should be mandatory that you should release a podcast or uh, a YouTube episode of you playing with your friends so people actually get to see how it's done. Because when you're reading in the book, it's kind of abstract and dry. And here's the other thing. When you're playing games and you counter a new rule book, you can kind of pick it up because you're immersed in it. You sort of understand the language. But if you're like me and you've been away from it for a long time, the language is kind of rusty and there's a new vocabulary. So actual gameplay, I think, is great for new listeners. And that's what I was really hoping to find initially. Something a cross between Vampire the Masquerade, a 25-year retrospective, and actual play. So one shot, I think, is great because having a, a ongoing campaign that has many, many episodes, I think that's a bit much for us at this point. But something that's a one shot, I think it's a good way to uh, put our toe in the water. Okay, let's see if we can come up with a four or five hour arc. I am pleased that a number of audience members have stepped forward and raised their paws and said, hey, we'll help, as have a number of the people in the Facebook group. If you're not a member of the Mage the Ascension Facebook group, it is a happening place. I started out at the Onyx Path Fora, and I'm like, wow, four posts about Mage a day. This is amazing. <laughs> I had apparently missed the Mage heyday in the late 90s and early 2000s online when like Anders' Mage page was being actively posted to, and the White Wolf chats were just like a constant wall of people having hot takes about thing. In fact, the phrase hot takes hadn't even been like added to Urban Dictionary, which also didn't exist yet at the time. And and the Facebook group is, without the hot takes, much closer than that. It's, it's a very international, it's a very broad group. Item two that I would like to say is... 
some sort of format where people with unpopular mage opinions can come on and kind of do like a come at me, bro. So I either want to call it mage hot takes, mage unpopular opinions, or or bring it. So basically just two people with very strong opinions about mage yelling at each other. Or alternatively, someone airs an unpopular opinion and the audience can call in and yell at them. So we would take advantage of the fact that Anchor allows audience members to like call in or send MP3 submissions. We can go through them kind of like listener mail and, and say, Terry, you're a moron for liking the arch spheres or, or, or something like that. So what do you think about mage hot takes edition? I think that that's a great idea. And I've seen that function with anchor and I haven't messed with it myself. And so it has a lot of possibilities. In fact, in terms of actual play, that is one aspect that you could use where people could, you say, okay, this is the situation. This is the scenario. What does your character do? And then the various players could record their actions or th- thoughts and, you can incorporate that in the show. I think that function's fantastic. But the hot takes, it's like any other game. And this is one of the things I missed about gaming is when a bunch of uh, players get together and they start dissecting the game. I-, I like this particular role. I like this particular order. And let's duke it out. And I-, I think that's fantastic. So definitely go with that. And the third one is to talk about the gaming industry. I don't know how interested the audience would be about, for instance, talking to the people at Onyx Path, just how a game gets made. It wouldn't even necessarily be mage content, but someone who's taken a game from start to finish, this is the process, this is how we pick systems, this is how literally a book gets made. So so kind of behind the curtains of the gaming industry, specifically a World of Darkness or, or Chronicles of Darkness, something in that sphere. I really don't want to talk to someone that maybe Wizards of the coast or someone who's writing fate or what have you and it wouldn't be something like um the story told podcast where they do three episodes about a gaming system and then move on to another one but some of the behind the scenes stuff about how like onyx path or white wolf work well onyx path they actually do their own podcast and they will go behind the scenes and they will talk about redlining so they are already doing that but i'm not discouraging you because lots of other podcasts who have interviewed people from that group to flesh things out even further. So I think that is another excellent idea. Now, whether or not the audience gets into it, I don't know, but I think it's fine because so far we've been covering all aspects of Mage. As I said, I'm the archeologist, so I'm like, tell me more about this game and and tell me more about these characters and you guys talk about the lore and the game mechanics. I, I think we have a wide umbrella that we can address and we will actually see by the downloads and by the listener input what they prefer. So audience, if you feel particularly strongly about these or think my ideas are all dumpster fires waiting to happen, email us, magethepodcast at gmail.com. Joseph takes the ones where you just call me an idiot and and point out that I don't know how to pronounce things and passes on all the nice ones. So if I don't get anything, I'll assume you hate everything. Going back to your your mage experience, are you going to do it again? Well, here's the deal. I hate to go back to the kids thing, but they were going to do it every other week and on that current schedule... It worked. I'm like, oh, great. They do the game when I don't have the kids so I can play. Unfortunately, they switch tracks, so now they're actually doing on the weekends that I do have the mm. kids. And so I can't make the commitment. And the other thing, this post-apocalyptic game that I've been talking about, um, I'm going to be running it in a couple of weeks, so my time is getting limited. So I would love to jump back in, but I, I simply I, I don't think I can make the time commitment. I did learn one thing, though, about that game is that I think I prefer street-level games where the powers are dialed back considerably. So one to two dots in most things, maybe a three-sphere. You're mostly worried about what's going on in the city, if not maybe even a neighborhood or a few blocks, as opposed to uh, globe-trotting, I'll put in contrast to it. 
globe trotting is okay. I think what it is is I, I think I prefer it low powered. And again, I'm going back to the Invisibles. And listeners, if you've never read the Invisibles, go on Comixology and download it because it is mind blowing. When I first read, it, I said, "Yep, that's me. I am a member of the Invisibles." And I, I think that was Grant Morrison's his spell that he was weaving on people because I recognized it right away. Is there a way that you feel like you could fit Mage into your life? Would you have any interest in, for instance, a text base or a play-by-mail or a play-by-post? Or are you very much a, I want to see and I want to be able to talk to the people I'm gaming with? I prefer getting together around a living room table. That was the other thing. Uh, what I did at At Ease Games, I am so happy that place exists, but it's a little loud, the table's a little narrow, and I prefer a more intimate environment. The text-based thing, uh, I don't think I ever mentioned this, but when I launched the podcast for a couple weeks, maybe a month, I was running a mage game via Twitter. But again, I just ran out of time and I couldn't give it the the attention it needed. But yeah, text-based would be fine. Oh, interesting. Because it would be nice if the guy that runs the Mage podcast is able to have it in his life. If not, I I think it's funny. Like I, I feel like at some point, probably in the early 2000s, every person who ever bought like a D&D manual was comfortable with the fact finally saying, no, 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 no. I just bought the books and I read through them and I made a lot of characters and I literally never played. And for me, that was my experience for three different D&D systems. I played a little bit of Planescape. I played a, a eensy weensy bit of Dark Sun, but like all the Alkadim and all of the Spelljammer supplements, I just I just ate those up as a kid and as a teenager. And that is a perfectly acceptable way of interfacing it. I'm sure White Wolf is perfectly fine if you just buy the books and never play. There's two things I want to address here. And one, when you talk about just rolling characters and never playing them, that's how people learn to play the game. That's how you understand how yep. the mechanics work. And the other thing I was going to say, and this is interesting to me because you are actually going to be participating in a mage game rather than running it. One of the things that I have found uh, all along my life role-playing games is that I wanted to be in the game that was in my head. And since nobody was running it, I just decided, well, I guess I'm going to have to be the game master. Yeah. And the same thing is going for a mage. So this post-apocalyptic game, again, time constraints. And so I've decided, you know what, it's going to have three acts and... Each act is going to be about maybe five to seven sessions, and then it'll wrap up. And once that's done, then I want to get back to my mage campaign because I've got copious notes, but I really want to do this post-apocalyptic game first because it's really foremost on my mind right now. Yeah, you allowed me to take a peek into that, and it looked pretty fleshed out. You were using a, a pretty involved Evernote system. What is your process for accumulating ideas and such? Well, the common book idea, um, there is a lot of writers who do that. And so they will just throw all their ideas, whatever it is, into the comic book and then later on start calling the material. And so that was my original intent. And my common book for the post-apocalyptic game, which I'm calling Soft Apocalypse, which is based on a Will McIntyre novel, it's gotten so huge that I can no longer contain it on one Evernote page. So it's spread out. But what I decided, I looked at all the reports on climate change and i thought you know what there are all these post-apocalyptic games and there's zombies or there's mutants or there's killer ai and i thought to myself you know what the possibility of what might actually happen is just as fantastic and more horrific than any of the elements involving zombies and mutants and killer ai and i thought well let's play that out and the biggest influence was uh, The Road. I'm like, what would it be like if you were truly one of the last people on the planet? It sounds depressing as hell, but to roleplay that, that's mind-blowing. So one of the recurring themes I 
that kind of always makes me sad about the apocalypse is the degree to which when things go south, everyone does kind of band together. Now, the tricky part is there are two types of apocalypses. You have the Earth Abides, which is a apocalypse where 90% of humanity is wiped out for some reason. In this case, it's closer to, to 99%. Think of the stand where some super flu comes through and kills everyone. The other one you have is ecological collapse. And in an ecological collapse, you have people, but you suddenly have a lack of resources. In the first, there, there's no fighting over dinner. Since everyone else is gone, you can suckle off the carcass of humanity, uh, pardon me, of civilization for a good long time. The Fury Road scenario you don't have that. You don't have that graceful fall. Things just break all of a sudden. So is yours kind of that second category where all the mouths are still around, but suddenly there's no food? It's both, actually. And here's okay. the other thing. In a lot of these games, a lot of these books, a lot of these movies, it's the day after or it's a, a generation after. And that's all well and good. But when I read Will McIntyre's Soft Apocalypse novel, what he did is he just took everyone from pretty much present day and just slowly made things worse then worse, then terrible, then terrifying, then horrifying. And I thought, well, that is a really interesting way to play it. So the way I want to do my game is act one, it's present day, and things start getting bad, and then they get really terrible, and then you get to act three. And that is the collapse. Uh, the environment completely collapses, and the planetary civilization collapses. And then act three, that's when we're in Cormac McCartney's The Road Territory, where uh, there's just a few human beings. And there's some interesting ways to play that out. For example, uh, canned goods. They have a, basically about a shelf life of about three years. But after that, you could eat it and you might fill you up, but you get no protein. You get no nourishment. So it's a little bit of both, where there's a whole community and things just get really, really bad after that. But you brought up an interesting point where people will band together to help each other out. And I live in San Diego, so it's a military town. And I have some friends who have prepper aspirations and like, yeah, you know, I'm just going off the grid. I'm like, well, dude, what happens if you break your foot? What if you get a toothache? You're going to need people. Yeah. The two things that always strike me about the apocalypse is, one, it's a strong encouragement to know your neighbors. If the grid were to go down for an extended period of time, say a week, the first thing you would want to do is have a barbecue. Go through all, <laughs> literally prepare all of your, chances are maybe not everyone in your neighborhood has a grill. I live in a city. Uh, I'm in a row house. Some people have barbecues. Other people don't. And it doesn't matter. Everyone's chicken's going bad in four days unless you, you secretly have access to, uh, to dry ice or something. So the first thing is have a barbecue. Figure out what perishables everyone can go through first and then kind of organize your food in that order. And two is that thing. Know your neighbors so you have an idea of, of what skill sets you have. You're going to need people who are medically skilled. You're going to need people who are, have mental health skills. You're going to need people that have experience bringing a community together. So like every time I go to a, a township meeting. It's not quite a township meeting, but there, there's 35,000 people that all have a neighborhood association. We get together once a month just to talk about issues. Again, I'm deal I'm in an area with, with a lot of opioid difficulties and, and drug abuse problems, and we talk about those things. And the upside of that is I now know my neighbors better just in case anything bad happens. I also feel like the apocalypse is always a good case to support any choice you make towards green living. If you have a few solar panels and you have the ability to use a composting toilet or produce some of your own food, you're 
you're going to be ahead of a lot of people. And not to say that the goal is to win the apocalypse, but resources give you the opportunity to make friends. I don't know. We don't have a lot of data to suggest that when things go south, the guy with the most bullets tends to make out the best. There was uh, Richard Garfield, the inventor of Magic the Gathering, was fond of saying that in a war of two people, it goes to the person who has the most preparation and has the, the keenest tactical ability. But in a war of three people, it goes to the person who brought the soda. And I very much want to be the guy who brings the soda to the apocalypse and makes friends. And we just all lock arms and go through, through a shitty future together. So, and once that gets up and rolling, we'd love to have you back to, as an excuse to kind of talk about the apocalypse. When you were talking about community in neighborhoods, most people don't know the neighborhoods because everybody is moving in and out of neighborhoods within about seven years. So it's really hard to build a community. So the fact that you do the things you do is really admirable. The other thing is the gaming community. I can't remember the last time where I have gotten together with people on a regular basis and sat down face to face for four to six to eight hours. So... That is a really great way to build up a community. So that's something that's really fantastic. So going back to another thing is you're actually going to be participating in a game rather than running the game. So what are your feelings about that? What are your apprehensions? I am terrified. It is mostly the fact that I have a particular way that I've run the game, and I've done it constantly over time. And I am worried that I'm going to cross my arms and go, that's not the way I would do it. I'm really afraid that I'm going to turn into a child and be like, well, that's not how mom cast that rote, or something like that. Or um, so I, I, I'm active with some of the more prolific authors on the Storyteller Vault. And you can tell from their writing, they have thought deeply about what they consider to be the correct interpretation of the Mage the Ascension rules. And I have made rules for my table. And the two areas where I'm going to be the most curious are one, how magical is the world they're creating? Uh, there's a knob you set when you start a chronicle that says there's one mage per five million people. So the United States would have 70 mages. And mages are super freaking powerful, and we get that, and most people who awaken are killed immediately or, or explode in this blast of paradox. So we're going to say that there are 70 active mages, one per five million. And that's one way of running mage. And on the other end of the spectrum is to say one in 50,000 people is a mage, which is one of the calculations someone threw out for the total number of changelings. And that's, that's a lot of mages. That's, again, for the United States, that's going to be something in the neighborhood of what? 7,000? That's a lot of mages running around. Like, that, that's enough to have secret societies and secret societies and secret societies. The magical number I run with is one in about 500,000. So it'll be cute to see where they set that knob. Is it like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, where every person you run into seemingly is a werewolf or a witch or, or a vampire? And I don't like those games. And likewise, I don't like games where everyone you're interacting with is also a wizard or something like that. I think mage is about the juxtaposition of the mundane with the magical and the difficulty of keeping focus when you theoretically have access to this infinite power, especially when juxtaposed with the fact that despite the fact that you have four dots in prime and one dot in entropy or what have you, you still have to pay your rent at the end of the month. The other knob is there are a bunch of kind of house rules that I use because I don't think the system is is spot on. I don't like the fact that characters with prime one can store an arbitrary amount of quintessence in their pattern up to 20 dots. So for me, it's always you can keep up to three times your avatar rating. And other DMs have different ways of, pardon me, storytellers, <laughs> have different <laughs> ways of managing that where they say, okay, if you have a lot of quintessence, then suddenly the technocracy is literally going to be able to see you from a enhanced satellite. You are in the same way that the United States has satellites that are capable of de detecting large quantities of fissile material, the technocracy has the 
same thing, but for magical material. And you're going to light up like a candle. And to me, that also influences the third of the, my second concern is how dark is their world of darkness going to be? Like, I used to run a grim and gritty down and dirty game, and then I moved into a city, into a neighborhood that was having drug problems. I don't want to roleplay that. Like, I pass people who are passed out on my way to work, and I, I give them a poke to make sure everything that's okay. I deal with an area where we're trying to get our, our school system to be able to have after-school programs. I don't want to roleplay that. Like, I want, <laughs> despite the fact that it is literally called World of Darkness, like, when I think of World of Darkness, to me, it is dark because there, there are strong outside figures that, in ways that would be tough for mortals, have access to power of a fundamentally different nature than what we are used to dealing with. And there are other groups of people that kind of need to balance against them. I am fine if the darkness is kind of an internal darkness, like a sense of alienation or a sense of being on the outside. I can deal with that. But just like, we're going to take America and make everything two notches shittier. I don't want to play that. So if it winds up being one of those games, I'm not quite sure how I'll adjust. Well, you know what occurred to me is, and this happened about a couple of years ago, is that I realized that we're living in William Gibson's Neuromancer novel. And I have fun time reading it. I just don't want to live in that world. It's uh, the future is here, but unevenly distributed to, uh, to quote the Grand Dismal. And in a weird, and Adam and I talk about the upside downside of it, where they talk about in the 90s, the, the problems with the technocrats having won. Ironically, he and I are, despite the fact that we are a time zone apart, and if I were to drive to his house, it would take me literally 24 hours of driving to get there. He and I can hop on Skype on a Saturday morning and talk for 90 minutes, sometimes three hours. I'm sorry to the audience, but we kind of get into it. Like For all of you who sat through our two-hour slog fest of the digital web, I did the math afterwards. And if you were a speed reader, you could have gone through the entire supplement in the amount of time it took for us to, to talk about it. Yeah, there, there, there are a lot of things we have to figure out. And the the thing that I find interesting is the world is kind of going through a process of being an awakening mage. Our access to resources has skyrocketed. If you look, for instance, at the number of years of proven gas reserves or proven oil reserves or coal that we have, that number is going up for two reasons. One, we're getting better at finding it. Two, the amount of economic activity we produce per unit of energy is also increasing. A gallon of gas literally goes further than it did in the 70s. And there are a lot of cases where we're doing that. But at the same time, there are some other resources that, that we haven't quite figured out. That The number of people that have taken, been taken out of global poverty in the past 100 years is astounding. You and I literally live 20 years longer than our great-great-grandparents. And I don't know about you, I'm going to try and enjoy the heck out of those 20 years. But at the same time, we know what's happening everywhere. And we as citizens now have seemingly both the most power of any time in history and the least. People talk about uh, the influences of third parties in politics or, or politicians having their vote bought. And I mean, that was a constant concern through the era of good stealings in the late, 19, uh, late 1800s. It required essentially a civilian uprising in the 1920s to do two things. One, to overturn the Lochner era in the Supreme Court, which said that contracts are supreme and final and the government doesn't have the right to interfere, which was set by what, Marbury, Marbury v. Madison? No, Charles River Bridge. Sorry, getting my Supreme Court cases confused. And it was the idea of having a competent public service was literally a campaign issue. And I feel like until something like that happens again, things are going to get real messy. We, we have access to, we, we haven't had a nuclear device go off in wartime 
ever since World War II, which is absolutely amazing. I don't know about you, that's great. Regardless of India-Pakistan, they are handling that in, it could certainly be done better, but all the naysayers who said that this was going to just launch up into nuclear arms at the first opportunity hasn't happened yet. But at the same time, the amount of fragility is increasing. The odds that all of the things required to keep the standard of living going and having one of them break is just kind of accumulating. And until we build some redundancy, until we find a way to, to take care of kind to everyone, we're going to have we're going to have some problems to take care of. And it's the 21st century. With a click of my mouse, I can find out about what's happening in Somaliland in an attempt to build Somalia. And at the same time, I can completely ignore that by going onto Snapchat. And I don't think we've upgraded our, our moral software yet to match what our hardware can do, as it were. In the world of darkness, the thing that makes it fundamentally the world of darkness is there are negative entities that have access to that and they're trying to take our eyes off the prize. And they have fundamentally different powers and they have fundamentally different embodiments of what they consider to be right and wrong. So to me, that's what kind of makes the world of darkness the world of darkness, or at least it does in my games. Wow, I talked a lot, sorry. No, that's quite a right. And it actually touches on one of the ideas I've been thinking from my own game, the post-apocalyptic game. Is one of the themes I wanted to explore is hope. Now, is hope, is it folly? Is it something that is actually a blinder? Or is it something that is will get us through the worst times? And the reason I bring this up, though, is I'm very curious, since you run games, for the most part, rather than participating in the games as a player, what are some of the themes that you go back to again and again in Mage? Or other games that you run? The themes that I like to go back to are... One, strangeness. The world is a weird place. There are places you have never been and people you have never met. And if we keep an open mind, but we also make sure that we have an, emo an emergency contact on our phone, we're probably going to get through it okay. The power of cooperation. One of the things that I find interesting was in some of the early World of Darkness stuff, one of the writers did a breakdown of what they thought the representation of the different groups was. So say you have 100 mages, how many of them are technocrats, how many of them are nephondic, how many are traditions, how many are dis disparate, so on and so forth. And that person said that the number of technocrats and the number of tradition mages were the same. And the power of the technocracy was one, that they unified behind a paradigm, and two, that they cooperated. And I immediately think to the fact that we did the episode on Chaos Factor, and Adam made the comment, I don't understand why all these groups are, these bad guys are cooperating. And it's one of those things where I look at something like the Legion of Doom or any, the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, they always cooperate better than the good guys. And even if they are fundamentally less powerful, they make up for it by working together. And I like very much having the theme that you are a cabal. You have a shared mission. There are individual goals that you have, but to now you are coming together and creating a whole that is better than the sum of its parts. So I, I like that as a theme. Wonder, strangeness, oddity. I'm not big on hubris as a theme, mostly because the setting does that for you. The phenomenon of paradox and the ability for mages to very quickly get in over their heads. I don't really need to add that as a theme. That's, that's something I feel the rules take care of for me. And the final one is the idea of need. Okay, so you're a vampire and you will never die a natural death and you have a millennia to kill. How do you fill your time? You are fundamentally different from the rest of humanity, but at the same time, the things that drive you, I guess with the exception of the beast, are going to be power, love, art, things that normal humans are going to go for. So to that extent, I very much like using the supernatural as a lens on what we want and who the characters actually are. My characters encountered this uh, particular 
scenario where there were four ways out of it. They needed to conduct this ritual to prevent Molhectorus, one of the Neverborn, or one of the Onceborn, I can't quite remember what um, Orpheus fans correct me, from rising from the underworld. And they needed a person with a particularly potent destiny to kind of sacrifice to Molhectorus to keep Molhectorus down. And the characters had the choice of the leader of their cabal, this very potent mage, who, if push comes to shove, that was kind of the get-out-of-jail-free card for the characters. They would just have to kind of convince her to be like, hey, your time's up, you're 400 years old, let the wheel spin. This very potent vampire that had been embraced as a mage and still had a high destiny rating that, if they didn't do planning, was going to mop the floor with them. And the third was a little girl in Trenton. Trenton is a city that's across the river from Philadelphia. And the moment they had done the research, they had found out the options, one of the players just looked at the other and goes, well, it looks like we have to kill a vampire. <laughs> and one of the other characters is like, uh, Terry was pretty explicit that she can rip our heads off, possibly without us knowing, all at the same time. And he's like, we're mages. This is what we do. Nowhere in the core rulebook does it say that is what mages do. But in that player's head, that was the game. That was their character. That's the way the world unraveled. And one of the other characters was like, but maybe we ask the girl if she wants to die? And that, that to me, was very much a reflection of those characters, how they viewed the world, and that, that filled me with so much joy. I, it, it justified a lot of setup involving getting historical maps of an ocean liner, which was ultimately her lair, and that was, that was super fun. The, uh, the, weird <laughs> the weird things that my coworkers see on my screen, they're like, oh, Terry's doing some weird research for work. I'm like, yes, it's totally for work. I needed historic maps of Philadelphia for insurance purposes. It's totally not for my role-playing. <laughs> Uh, in your chronicle the one that you are either running or the mage one how collaborative do you feel that it is i don't think i can give an accurate description because i only played in one game and it really moved at a breakneck speed and things had to be done boom 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 and one of the things i really enjoyed about the vampire game and again i, I have no idea how their other game stations go in, in that particular mage game is there was a lot of character interaction. And again, when I was a young man, it was mostly D&D, &D, Traveler, and Champions, and it was just, let's beat, let's beat things up and kill things. You know, hack and slash. Yeah. And as an adult, have a game, it's like, oh, no, no, there's politics, there's personalities, and there's dialogue. It's like, oh, this is different, this is new. And I found I really, really, really enjoyed that. And so I was hoping to have more of that. Again, I, I have no idea what the rest of the gameplay is like because I only played in that one session. And in the Chronicle, your soft apocalypse, do you feel the players are going to be involved in figuring out what the world is or do you feel like you're making a world and they get to explore it? Uh, a little bit of both. Um, okay. This is one of the fantastic things about coming back to gaming after all these decades is so much has changed and two of the big influences for me is Fate and Powered by the Apocalypse where you build the world together and you establish connections between the character and you determine what are the immediate concerns of the characters and what are their long-term problems that they're going to have to face and you create uh, faces and places and uh, I think that's fantastic and I'm like I'm going to do that so I already have a world that I've built and I have a fictional town in Oregon that I want to start the game off so there is that but I also want to give my players an opportunity to also build the world and have some agency rather than me just saying, this is what's happening, deal with it. This is your quest. It's it's almost comical. Like I look at I, I look at the character sheets, for instance, for Chronicles of Darkness or some of the storytelling uh, systems. I look at the character sheet and I'm like, man, 
the character sheet tells me what the story's going to be, where it goes over, this is the thing I'm super good at. This is the thing I'm super bad at. These are my demons. These are my virtues. These are my vices. This is These are my longstanding connections. These are my short, medium, and long-term goals. And I'm like, huh. I hope Mage 5th Edition starts grabbing some of those things because I feel like it's just going to make everyone's job a heck of a lot easier. And it's going to be a lot less of the, okay, you're all meeting at a bar and let's figure out how to get the story rolling. So we've talked for a, a wonderful period of time. Do you, have any, do you have any parting thoughts that you'd like to give to our audience or projects that you're working on or any direct requests from our, uh, our millions of listeners? The one thing I will say, uh, well, two things really, is one, if you want to participate on the show... We're welcome to it. Uh, we want to hear from you. And the other thing I want to say is that if there is a podcast that you want to happen that is not addressing a concern or a passion that you have, go do it. And if you only have a small listenership of 20 people, that's fine. In fact, when we started this podcast, when I started this podcast, I'm like, if 20 people listen to it, that is cool. I don't need thousands of people as long as those 20 people are really into the topic matter. And so, so far, it's been slowly growing, and I'm really happy about it. So getting back to my original point, if you are into scale model railroads, make a podcast about it because there is someone out there ready to listen to that show. And if you would like to, and if you would like any of the hosts from Maids the Podcast to be on there, by all means. But yeah, uh, what Joseph said, if you are a creator for the system, if you've written a supplement, if you're an author for White Wolf, if you do work with DriveThruRPG, if you do work with Onyx Pass, by all means, contact us. We are always thrilled to talk about talk with people who are excited to talk about the work that they've done. If there's also an area you feel that we're missing, by all means, tell us. If you're like, you know what? You guys aren't talking about mage mummy crossovers enough. I will make that happen. I will. <laughs> I now have 100% of the books that have been published for Mummy the Resurrection. Three. I even got the LARP rules just to be a completist. But yeah, tell us at MadesThePodcast at gmail.com. In the meantime, follow us at MadesThePodcast on Twitter. Visit us at MadesThePodcast.com. Join us on Facebook. We don't have a Facebook group, do we? I, you're so much better than this. Uh, Joseph, would you mind would you mind talking us out? But you can find us on iTunes. You can find us on Google Play. You can find us on the TuneIn app. You can actually go to the website. But those are the places you can find us. You can find us on Twitter at Major Podcast. And of course, you can hit us up on email at majorpodcast at gmail.com, which is something I neglected until Terry here brought it back. And it's fantastic because now we're getting way more listener responses than we ever have before. So thank you for that, Terry. Gladly. In the meantime, happy role playing. See everyone next week. See you next week, guys. <laughs>